Greetings, this is J.R. Dickey. Thanks for tuning in to our podcast. And by the way, don't forget our website, graceandtruth.net. I hope you're having a great day, but if not, hang with me. It's about to get better. Have you been walking under a cloud? Well, this lesson may be for you. Listen up. A narrow finger jutted out from the prophet with a sorrowful yet sincere declaration You are the man. History hung in the balance along with the entire messianic line. Quite possibly, heaven observed with intense interest. God knew the outcome ahead of time, but no one else did. Neither the prophet nor the accused. The man was guilty. It was clear. But the man was a king. The deed was despicable, and the question remained, how would David react? Good news, he repented. You're all familiar with this famous story. David had blown it in the affair with Bathsheba, and now he was exposed by his trusted friend, the prophet Nathan, understanding the need for and the nature of Repentance is fundamental to our spiritual health. History is indeed hinged upon it, the world as well as yours and mine individually. The Bible is filled with examples of those who failed to repent, as well as those who did. Consider Cain. After killing his brother Abel, you never see even a hint of repentance. Consider Esau. He begged his father Isaac to repent, that is, change his mind, concerning the blessing, but to no avail. Yet Esau never himself repented of his ungodly attitudes. Consider King Saul. He never truly repented of esteeming the people's opinion higher than God's. And consider Judas. He was remorseful for selling out Christ but he never turned to God. But then there's Jacob, Moses, David, the Ninevites, check out the book of Jonah, Peter, Paul, and others who, when confronted with their failures and shortcomings, embraced the humiliating truth about themselves, turned their hearts toward God, and changed. In fact, as uncomfortable as it is to some to realize there's no neutral ground here, everyone, yep, everyone, is eventually either repentant or reprobate. Now, repentant means to have a genuine change of mind, while the word reprobate is literally to be unapproved. To have failed the test. But we need to understand God's testing, and we're not talking SATs. Let's first consider repentance. There is a great difficulty in expressing the true idea of a change of thought with reference to sin when we translate the New Testament repentance into other languages. You see, the Latin version renders it, quote, exercise penitence. But penitence 
literally signifies pain, grief, distress, rather than a change of thought and purpose. Thus, Latin Christianity has been corrupted by the pernicious error of presenting grief over sin rather than abandonment of sin as the primary idea of New Testament repentance. It was easy at that time and now to make the transition from penitence to penance. The English word repent is derived from the Latin, I hope I can say this right, reponentere, and inherits the fault of the Latin, making grief the principal idea, rather than the conception of a change of mind with reference to sin. But the exhortations of the ancient prophets of Jesus and of the apostles show that the change of mind is the dominant idea of the words employed, while the accompanying grief and consequent reformation enter into one's experience from the very nature of the case. Worldly repentance is nothing but remorse and regret for our consequences of our action. It has no more redeeming qualities. It only puts us under the burden of our guilt. You see, Judas repented of his actions, but he did not turn to God for forgiveness. He tried to remove his guilt by arguing with the priest. They didn't care that he betrayed innocent blood and said so. He then tried to ease his conscience by casting the money into the temple. You know, undoing a wrong is like trying to unscramble an egg. Giving the money back did not erase the burden or undo the consequences. Because of the weight of his guilt, Judas hanged himself, as though that would offer restitution. It does not. In death, Judas was just as guilty as in life, only now he had no opportunity to be redeemed. You see, worldly repentance does not turn us toward God, but instead it drives us away from God. We feel unworthy of God's mercy because we're not looking at God or His Word. We are looking to our actions and our guilt. Guilt can never bring us true repentance. Only the light of God's Word can produce true repentance. A repentance which is not merely sorrow over what you've done in your life, but rather the joy of what God offers in exchange for your life. Thanks, Eddie Snipes, for a lot of that. Now, a common misconception concerning repentance is that if you truly repent with regard to a specific sin attitude or conduct, that you'll never need to deal with that again. That's not necessarily true. There are sinful attitudes in most, if not all, our hearts that require wisdom and diligence to deal with throughout our lives. Let me add trust as well. And they can rear their nasty heads even after you've previously truly repented of them. A critical heart, a loose tongue, entertaining a haughty, prideful, or lustful thought. Need I go on? But here's wisdom. A.B. Simpson, the founder of the Christian and Missionary Alliance, told 
of a man who advertised for a coachman. Among those who came were two who seemed to him to be particularly bright. He took them aside and asked them how near they could drive to the edge of a precipice without falling over. Well, the first candidate answered that he could go within half an inch and had frequently done so, just shaving the edge and feeling perfectly safe. He then asked the other the same question. Well, sir, replied the man modestly, I I really cannot tell because I have never allowed myself to venture near the edge of a precipice. I've always made it a rule to keep as far as possible from danger, and I've had my reward in knowing that my master and his family are kept from danger and harm. Well, the master had no difficulty in deciding between the two candidates. You are the man for me, he said. The other may be brilliant, but you are safe. Thanks, Victor Yap, for that little story. The saved, repentant person has the power of God's Spirit and is free from the domination of sin but not necessarily from the attacks of the enemy, the world, or the flesh. Hard times can often lead to temptation. In our suffering, the evil one is quick to come to our aid to offer one of his solutions, pursuing pleasure to numb the pain, copying an attitude, becoming bitter, getting even, feeding anger and such. Thanks, Joni Tata, for that. When Satan left off tempting Christ in the wilderness, it says that he departed from him until an opportune time. That's why we're told to wear our spiritual armor. Check out Ephesians 6, 11-18. Although the emphasis in the following verse is surely upon forgiveness, we should also consider what is implied about repentance. When Jesus told his disciples, here it is, Luke 17, verses 3 and 4, Take heed to yourselves. If your brother sins against you, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day, and seven times in a day returns to you, saying, I repent, you shall forgive him. Jesus did not mean that repentance is double-minded or wishy-washy. Sincere repentance means, indeed, a change, a change of mind, and consequently a change of action or direction. But neither is it a once-and-for-all, now-I-can-cruise deal. We all have much to repent of. Therefore, we must also, ourselves, be very forgiving. All right, now, since we've briefly considered repentance, let's look at the opposite side of the coin, so to speak. That is the reprobate. What makes one as such? I mean, what makes a reprobate? Is it a committing of sin, a moral failure, a lack of good performance? Since the term literally means to be unapproved, To answer this, we need to consider the approval or testing process as described in Scripture. Now, some people don't like the idea that God tests us. 
But the Bible is very specific about it. Testing, trying, proving, and tempting are generally used in translating the most frequently used terms in the original languages of Old and New Testaments. There are, however, two principal ideas involved. The first is given in the Hebrew word, I hope I could say this, zarath, and the Greek dokimazo, which come from the root words meaning to smelt, refine, and also to recognize as genuine. The second is chakar in the Old Testament and perasmos in the New Testament, which emphasize a search, an examination, or experiment. We find the first concept in verses like, and remember, this is about smelting. Psalm 17, 3. You have tested my heart. You have visited me in the night. You have tried me and found nothing. Psalms 26, 2. Examine me, O Lord, and prove me. Try my mind and my heart. Psalms 66, 10. For you, O God, have tested us. You have refined us as silver is refined. Isaiah 48.10 Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tested you in the furnace of affliction. Daniel 12.10 Many shall be purified, made white, and refined, but the wicked shall do wickedly. Zechariah 13.9 I will bring the one-third through the fire, will refine them as silver is refined, and test them as gold is tested. 1 Corinthians 3.13 Each one's work will become clear, for the day will declare it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. 1 Thessalonians 2.4 but as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, even so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who tests our hearts. And finally, 1 Timothy 3.10, But let those also first be tested, then let them serve. Now, refining or smelting requires heat, lots of heat. The process is generally repeated to produce greater and greater purity in the metals. But the important thing to note is that the process does not simply destroy the pollutants, but rather exposes them, bringing them to the surface. The smelter then removes them. The same is true spiritually. Oh, brother, how we would love for people to only see the final result to somehow rid ourselves of the dross in our lives, such that everyone thinks we've always been and only are 99.999999% pure. But that would be a lie, and it would only do us harm, ultimately. Now, the second concept, examination, is found in such verses as Psalms 139.1. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. Psalms 139.23 Search me, O God, and know my heart. And finally, James 1.12 Blessed is the man who endures temptation, for when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord 
has promised to those who love him. Now, the examination goes hand in hand with the smelting, if you would. But what is being examined? Is God looking to see how good you are, or how many religious works you've done, or how high you can jump? Will he curve your score if you walk on coals of fire? (laughs) Extra credit, maybe. Will someone really mess up the curve with their A++? Will God love you less if and when you fail? Now, now most people, you know, hate tests. I do. Why? Well, it's just the fear of failure. But in coming to Christ, we've already admitted failure. So, what's being examined? When dross is revealed, the examiner, or that is the smelter, is looking for... Nope, I'm not going to tell you yet. Hang on. There are instances in Scripture where someone passed a test. Abraham, in his willingness to sacrifice his son Isaac at God's command. Joseph, in running from the seduction of Potiphar's wife. Remember that story? Daniel and the boys in Babylon, in demonstrating their faithfulness to Jehovah. But there's only one person in all of history who passed every test flawlessly. You guessed it, Jesus. Hebrews 4.15 says, For we have not a high priest who cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. He came through with no dross at all, so to speak, not 99.99999% pure, but 100% period, test after test after test, all the way. And this is so important to hold on to, for you and I as Christian believers may, like the guys mentioned above, pass a test or two here and there, but frankly, none of us will really set the curve, will we? Thus, we must place our confidence in the fact that He, Jesus, perfectly passed it all. He is the approved of God. Now, through faith in Christ, we get to appropriate His approval status to ourselves. And this is ultimately what the smelter is looking for. He's looking for faith. And what faith? Two metals in the Bible are used to picture the testing in our lives. They are silver and gold. Now, silver is the metal of redemption. And gold is associated with our faith. Now, I'll submit this for your consideration. In our times of testing and trial, It's not necessarily our success or failure that's being examined, but rather the smelter seeks to know if we will maintain our faith in his redemption through Jesus Christ, which is the basis for our relationship with him. The scripture says in 1 Peter 1, 6-8, Now, for a little while, if need be, You have been grieved by 
various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise and honor and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, who having not seen, you love. And Hebrews 10 says, Let us draw near with a true heart of full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 19 says, having faith and a good conscience, which some, having rejected concerning the faith, have suffered shipwreck. And 2 Timothy 3, Now as Jonas and Jambres resisted Moses, so do these also resist the truth. Men of corrupt minds disapprove, that is, reprobate, concerning the faith. And so, back to our question. What makes the reprobate, the disapproved, or, as in the King James Version, the disqualified? Quite simply, God is testing, and his testing reveals no faith in his redemptive work, his gracious gift. On the contrary, for this person, trials or tribulation only show a hardness of heart. It is written of the tribulation period in the book of Revelation. It says in chapter 9, But the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, that they should not worship demons and idols of gold, silver, brass, and stone, and wood, which can neither see nor hear nor walk. And they did not repent of their murders and of their sorceries and of their sexual immorality or their thefts. So, we need to understand that although our Lord does indeed tell us to be conformed to the image of his dear Son, check out Romans chapter 8, chapter 12, and Philippians chapter 3. And though godly character is indeed one fruit of his testing, that's in Romans chapter 5, verses 3 and 4, there's only one kind of real failure. That's failing to trust in and submit to him. If you do well, like Abraham with Isaac, well, that's ideal. But if you need to repent, like David with Bathsheba, and you repent, you're that much less drossy. Praise the Lord. David was not disqualified. He was truly repentant and maintained his faith. Let me get this point for clear. Let's say it again. He maintained his faith, his trust in God. Clearly, there are severe consequences to his failure. We know that we've read the Bible. Sin has its consequences. But God's testing produces good fruit. Indeed, it's a pruning, a cleansing process at times. And the bottom line, so to speak, is abiding. Yeah, Jesus said, abide 
in me, and I in you. As a branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. You hang in there. You hold on to Jesus. You continue to trust in him. And so in conclusion, what I want to make clear is that under all circumstances, we must abide in Christ. For he is the only one who is in all ways tried and true. When you pass a test, praise God, abide in him. When you fail, but truly repent, praise God, abide in him. Always abide in Christ our Lord. O Lord, our Lord, tried and true. May we always ever abide in you. Trust in him. Now may the Lord grant you peace in the midst of any storm and faith to trust him. Look for our next podcast and may you realize more of his grace today.